Thrive, flourish, unleash your buried treasure. This is the Exponentially Empowered Podcast with Joel Vine. Through conscious action and authentic self-connection, empower yourself to write your own script. Okay, I'm going to set the scene, flashback to September 2009, Poughkeepsie, New York. And I am sitting in my apartment at Vassar Co- near Vassar College campus. I just turned 21 and I was starting my senior year of college, studying education, music education, getting ready to get a credential to work in K-12. And I just started my student teaching experience. I was working on a small K through five elementary school, as well as a large 4,000 student high school. So at this point, I had loosely begun questioning the nature of the school system and sort of questioning the culture at large. But then in this moment, I came across this little website with a cartoon of a sad, frowny kid dragging his feet and about to enter a school bus. And this website was for a new podcast called the school sucks podcast and i was immediately drawn in so i start listening and this guy starts talking on this sort of raspy microphone about the hidden lessons of school obedience conformity and apathy and i just start eating it up and you know i'm working at the same as i'm listening to these podcasts i'm working with these excited inquisitive kindergartners you know at the same time i'm working with sort of silent and passionless high school freshman. And I kind of see what, what Brett, the creator of the show is talking about uh, in terms of obedience, conformity and apathy and how those things uh, accumulate over the years in the, in the K through 12 experience. Um, So I'm just hooked into this show and uh, I've been, I've been listening ever since past 11 years. Um, And, you know, but after those first hundred episodes, 2009 to 2010, School Shock Sucks is not just about talking about problems. It really turns into to a show about self-education, personal empowerment, philosophy, critical thinking. Brett's done amazing shows on trivia method of critical thinking, on logical fallacies, on the getting things done system of organization, six pillars of self-esteem, non-bound communication, entrepreneurship, and numerous education alternative options. All this I've soaked up. My curiosity is just snowballed. I've really taken it to heart, the concepts of, of personal development in particular and, and building, being the example for how you want the world to be. And that's sort of the, I mean, without School Sucks, I wouldn't be here right now with creating this podcast, Exponentially Empowered, the idea of starting with yourself. And I'm really grateful to today have Brett Finat, the host of School Sucks podcast, with me and I'm grateful to call him a friend and really excited to talk to him about these ideas. Welcome, Brett. Hey, Joel. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that we are finally doing this. Absolutely. So another memory was basically 2010 and I was listening to your show and kind of driving around New York State and you had this episode about the spheres of control. And this was really the beginning, the seed that was planted for this podcast, Exponentially Empowered. 
where you're, you're identifying, you know, it's easy to see these major systems of, you know, the federal reserve or any oppressive system of government war on drugs, any of this kind of stuff, and then feel outraged and try to make change uh, from the outside in trying to, 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 to uh, disintegrate these systems through advocacy, you're arguing with people and you had the show just identifying that, Hey, that's really not much you can do on an individual level to, to make that huge impact directly, but indirectly you can do quite a bit. And that was where you identified, you know, the different spheres of influence that you have focus on your health, focus on your financial life, focus on professional happiness, focus on, relationship freedom, time freedom, your own self-esteem. And that, I think in conjunction with sort of the second level, which might be connecting to your relationships and your community and watching that outgrow, you know, that's really the most powerful way. So I'm curious if you could talk more about that 2010 sort of moment for you and the uh, influences there. Absolutely. And uh, it, thank you for saying the date several times, because I like the fact that we're getting it on the record that we were in before Jordan Peterson clean your room on this. Uh, in, in fact, Jake DeSillis and I did a show, uh, I think back like four over four years ago called A Better World Starts with a with a clean bedroom. And that was years and years and years after this, this like turning point in the show that you were talking about. So I think, I, I think my initial observation, and I, I obviously was not uh, the first person to, to make this observation. I think it was Gandhi, or at least it's attributed to Gandhi, and it's become a very sort of um, cliched social change versus, uh, or social change with personal development um, quote, which is be the change you want to see in the world. Where... Um, when I was young, and I think this is happening to a lot of young people today, uh, a lot of our energy and our attention is pulled away from ourselves, away from the, uh, the, the spheres of influence that we actually have um, into, yes, these, these distant things that we're going to be able to have very little uh, power over as individuals, and the truth is, even as movements or organizations. So... Uh, I found that I was substituting, um, you know, this uh, responsibility to point out the things that were wrong in the world for actual personal growth, right? To feel like I was involved in some kind of important effort or important movement was in fact a surrogate for actually working on myself and working on myself would have been a way to expand, you know, my, my sphere of influence uh, to family, to friends, to community. But if all of that at that most inner circle is, is being ignored, then why would anybody listen to me? And honestly, what's my stamina for, um, you know, difficult work as far as trying to address complex, uh, you know, social or political problems going to be if my own life is in chaos. 
And, you know, I started doing this show over 10 years ago um, uh, to meet a need, uh, to express myself, to say things that I couldn't say when I worked in schools and, you know, private education services. Uh, but I, I didn't really do it with um, personal growth as uh, like an initial kind of project. I knew that school was certainly ignoring and exacerbating uh, a lot of the damage to self, to the individual uh, that really needs to be addressed and healed if, you know, we're going to have successful, happy, fulfilled uh, lives. But it really, it wasn't part of my mission when I started doing this. I really did as the title, the title that I've been stuck with for almost yeah. 11 years now suggests, it was focused on something very much outside of me and not for, uh, you know, surviving and thriving in a world that is, um, you know, in many ways, imperfect and challenging and, you know, to be more cynical and, and corrupt and, and um, you know, cruel in some ways. And, and those are the realities that we have to live with. So, I think at some point I realized that the, the strengthening of the self was the most important part of trying to confront any of that stuff. And even if you don't get very far, uh, it's still the most important work you can do, right? Even if the Federal Reserve is here when I, when I died, I'm, <laughs> when I die, I'm glad I put my focus uh, where it was. And it took a long time. You know, I mean, I might have said that in 2010, but it, it took, you know, four or five years before I was really able to uh, practice what I think I began to preach uh, in, in that in that podcast that you mentioned. Yeah, and I'm curious to dig in more about your your growth experience in those areas. But first of all, I mean, just starting. Yeah, the first year of school sucks was more cynical for sure. Sure. Um, but and and you've talked about how that was out of your own desire for just self expression and it's a therapeutic element to to get things off your chest. Um, I, I yeah, I also think I knew, I, I think I had a pretty good sense of what entertainment was, like as far as, uh, the show is political, right? It's like undeniably political. It, it really looks at everything through a libertarian lens. It did so much more explicitly back then. And I think with the, the media influences that I had, which, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest ones was a radio show called Free Talk Live. Um, you have to, you know, you draw lines. You say, we're on this side. This is our enemy. These are the rocks we throw. And, and that's kind of a, a setup that a lot of people are looking for if you're going to, um, you know, do something that has a lot of political commentary built into it. Yeah. I would just, I would just add that even if it's cynical or political, um, the fact that you created the podcast was something productive. You know, because you're sure. not simply on, you're not simply um, debating on social media or even debating in real life with people who don't want to hear it. You're, you're creating something and you are uh, providing an, uh, an opportunity to speak to people who are curious, right? Because the thing about podcasts is people have completely, are completely uh, choosing on their own volition what podcasts to listen to. And you know that anyone who's listening is curious to listen. So that's, it's a creative outlet that was productive in and of itself, even in the first year of the show. Um, and then of course it started really focusing on the self. Um, but I wanted to, I was curious about more about your uh, influence of 
about the sphere of control topic and personal freedom first idea, Stefan Molyneux, of course, and that's his earliest shows, Freedom Man Radio, were really about that. And his latest shows, we, we agree, are off the rails and we, we don't we don't advocate a lot of what he's saying politically so much these days, sure. but those earliest shows, and that's how I found your show. You guys collaborated way back in the beginning. Um, those shows are all about personal freedom and talking about, you know, if you, if your relationships are unhappy, then who are you to go talking about creating a free society when you're not free in your own relationships? And that was or your family. We, yeah. Or your yeah. work. Sure. Yeah. Was that something that was directly influential in this sphere of control topic? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think Wes Bertrand and I did a series called um, Wes, by the way, was also I mentioned Free Talk Live. I should also credit Wes. And Wes was the guy who told me about uh, Stefan Molyneux. But I should credit Wes as one of my biggest influences. I know he's a, a mutual friend and uh, he and I actually just talked for gosh, almost three hours uh, yesterday morning. And, um, nice. you know, so, so he was, uh, he did Complete Liberty podcast and that was how I actually got my feet wet. I, I sent him a message, I think in 2008, and I said, can I audition to be like a co-host <laughs> of your show before, before I even had, and I had a vision for, for School Sucks as kind of like a, a documentary film or series, but it had just been shelved because I, I was discouraged for various reasons. But um, the message of complete liberty, which was, you know, it, while it alerted people to what the outside threats and impositions to freedom were, certainly, Certainly. It, it also did have that, that personal focus like Freedom Main Radio had. So uh, that message really resonated with me. Uh, Wes obviously seemed likable and accessible. So I reached out to him and we, I don't know, we did like five or six hours on, on the topic of education. Uh, and I think that was really, and then, you know, he invited me back as a co-host to talk about other topics. And that was when I was like, oh, I really got to get going on on my own thing here. So my show kind of spun off from, from that show, but you, I'm sorry, you asked me a question about, um, sphere or specifically of about, about Stefan Molyneux's shows and his, his emphasis of personal freedom and, and relationship and, freedom. And then that's how I got to talking about this series. Uh, it was called escape from imagination land that Wes and I did. And it was in 2010. And I think that was like, you know, me saying, uh, or echoing that, that statement from Steph and that might have even been something that kind of tuned me into that idea is it's like, wow, I'm being really critical of a lot of things in the outside world. And, uh, so-called normal people and, you know, normal political thinking and functioning. But if I'm becoming more aware of some of the challenges that I'm having in my own life, like even if I think that I've really figured things out when it comes to politics or education or philosophy, there are some, there are some places where, uh, you know, as a 32-year-old man, I am just completely lost. And um, I started to feel like there needed to be a more empathetic approach to the blind spots that I thought other people had if I had so many of them in my own life, right? It couldn't be like 100% outgoing 
you know, judgment towards other people. There needed to be like more self-reflection. And, and I think that was a really important turning point in the show uh, for me, even though, as I said before, it definitely took um, a long time for that idea to yield results in, in my own life. But I think uh, if, if I could just jump into the, to this for a second, I, I do a lot of callbacks to those old times <laughs> on the show when it comes to like cynicism or, or directing attention outside of a sphere of control, because this has been a very challenging year. And, and you and I have talked about this in, in our private conversations. But uh, I think the, the original model that I kind of laid out on the show is like you have these outgoing spheres of, of influence, you know, yourself, your family and friends, your community. And then if you are able to be a person of influence through those spheres, then maybe you can extend yourself into, into larger projects. But there's another uh, model or another visualization that I think is really useful for this. And it's about the difference between being proactive and being reactive. And I think the events of 2020 have really like pulled this back into focus for me. Um, you have a circle of control and then outside of that, there's a circle of concern, right? So in the circle of control would be like things like attitude, um, you know, your, your habits, what you're doing for work, uh, what you're buying, what you're consuming, where you're living, the relationships you have, uh, what you're putting in your mind, your body, uh, you know, what, all of those types of things. Um, beyond that, the circle of concern would be like, you know, the political views of other people, the news, um, what other people think of you. And when, uh, when we have a year like this, well, I'm not like there's ever been a year like this before in my life, but when lots of stressful, potentially traumatic, seemingly urgent things happen uh, in the outside world, it's very easy for that outer sphere of concern to kind of close in on your actual sphere of control, right? Like if the whole circle, the one circle inside the other, if the whole thing represents the energy and attention you have to devote in your life, um, the circle of concern can start to crowd out and squeeze in on the, um, the circle of actual control that you have. And so I just wanted to say that I'm really happy to be having this discussion because I, and I, I think I've mentioned this on my podcast, I've felt that happening this year. I think a lot of people uh, can relate to that as, um, you know, we've all done like social media detoxes and news detoxes in, in our lives, but this has been a, a particularly challenging year to um, devote what is, and I'm sure it's different for everybody, the right amount of time to that sphere of control and um, to, to have appropriate respite from that, uh, circle of concern. It doesn't mean you should never spend time there, but uh, it, it, it's easier to spend more time there when there's a lot happening outside the circle of control. Absolutely. And I've sensed that myself in 2020, the the circle of concern uh, closing in. And that's one motivation for restarting this podcast, creating season two, is I want to pump this message up because no matter what the world's doing, it's never going to be different in terms of your choice to choose. As Viktor Frankl said, you're, you always have the choice to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances. So yeah, there is a lot that is concerning and there's a, I think a lot of people are feeling an exacerbation of, you know, frustration, 
worry, you know, uncertainty, and there's there's a lot of sort of flux or uh, instability, and that's I think even that's why it's even more important to to underscore this message so that you can create a sense of groundedness and stability in your own you know own life, your own psychology, and that's going to be not only fruitful for you, but then you can be a beacon of light for other people because there's not it's not like this is at all the normal attitude to take. So if you can do it, then you're going to, you know, pass that torch a bit to other people. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's, uh, as you said, as you've alluded to, it's, it's not a message that is necessarily, uh, as marketable, right? It's really, you know, it's really marketable to talk about the political realm because everyone has a political opinion, right? And it's completely socially acceptable to have a political opinion, Right. But if you have, I mean, I've, I've experienced this recently, even talking to people, you know, voluntarists and free thinking people where you start, I start talking about something like, Oh, I think the roots of all these problems is childhood adverse experiences. And if we, you know, let's, let's turn inward and heal that and help parent our kids better. All of a sudden, like the atmosphere in the room changes, even though we've all been sharing all these ideas about the bigger picture, all of a sudden you start talking about personal empowerment. Whoa, it just got real. All of a sudden everyone's looking in the mirror about, okay, am I, am I actually addressing that? And that can be uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but I think leaning into that discomfort is, is really powerful and it's going to be fruitful for you and, and your, your other spheres. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as far as like trying to at least project a message, right? So we're, we're talking about in media, you have to market yourself and you have to, you know, market your brand and, and your, your voice to a certain extent. And it, it, part of marketing is building a tribe around what you're doing. And it is challenging. It's not impossible, but it's challenging to build a tribe without <laughs> letting those people know that there is in fact another tribe on the other side of the hill, right? So that is almost an invitation in, in, in a lot of the, the types of media that we create. And it's like, I have to circle back to that and provide red meat, uh, I feel like, to an audience about teachers unions or higher education, social justice warriors or, or the media, like th those kinds of things. That, that's who's on the other side of the hill that's coming to get us, you know, so let's draw the tribe in, in, in close and make sure we're strong. Like that, that's always happening. So yeah, it is very, very difficult. And I think like just, I would say Tim Ferriss has done a really good job of that, like having that kind of uh, close connection with an audience without having to frequently uh, remind them of some other. I think there's probably a lot of people in the personal development space, whether they're, you know, creating products or YouTube channels or podcasts that, that are, that are pretty effective with that. But in, in what I do, um, you know, focusing on school versus education, there certainly is uh, a lot of conflict in those arenas. So I, I do think that, there needs to be uh, reminders uh, about the things that um, hinder, you know, freedom. I mean, that my yeah. mission statement, because uh, like, like with anything, and even like with a lot of my habits or my commitments to, to personal growth, um, the passion and the commitment waxes and wanes over time. Like I've been at this a long time. And um, 
you know, when it wanes, I kind of go back to my statement of purpose, which is I want to help liberate uh, people uh, or help people liberate themselves, I think is a better way of saying it, from the things that make them unhappy and unfree. Well, What's revealed, I think, through the story of, of institutionalized schooling in the United States is there are uh, collectives, there are people, there are projects that, uh, even if it is not in their mission statement, we're here to make people unhappy and unfree, the, the effect of uh, you know things like public schooling and various aspects of higher education, and and this even certainly extends into the professional world. It has that outcome, so we we have to put some attention there. And I I constantly find myself in this tug of war trying to strike the right balance because what's a tra- there's something that is to to what you're saying about people's um, people's reluctance to look inward right? There is something that is more comfortable and satisfying about looking outward, right? And identifying the, the, the defects in, in others, right? So it's, it's easy to go there. And it's always been a very difficult balance for me to strike to be like, okay, remind people that there are, um, you know, individuals and institutions and organizations that are interfering with human flourishing and human freedom, but make sure that we're doing enough work, enough content on how to, um, you know, create the strength to to confront those things and persevere uh, through whatever obstacle courses those those entities set up for us in life. Yeah, and I think you've done admirable work over the years striking that balance. I, I would say maybe you know, 80% of the time you're talking about personal development and, and uh, alter- alternative education options and sort of trying to create a, a sort of solution-oriented approach, but then you still touch on these problematic influences in the, in the society. And that's also still relates to the personal empowerment because if you are talking about critical thinking in uh, interpreting media, basically media literacy, which you've done, I mean, an enormous amount of work on media literacy. And that is in creating that intellectual self, self-defense. That is an element of personal empowerment, where you are now able to have tools to see all this information, especially now when there's so much information. Uh, even though it's talking about something in the greater society that also connects to the self. Yeah, I I think that that intellectual self-defense is obviously an extremely important part of, um, you know, like focus on self, personal wellness, personal growth, because if you're if too much uh, of that that bad material is in your intellectual or emotional diet, it's obviously going to interfere with it's going to hurt that growth. And so it's not just like intellectual self-defense. I think it's also emotional self-defense when it comes to a lot of media, mainstream or alternative, uh, and, and the, you know, the contents, uh, and the the toxicity, uh, of those kinds of things. And I was telling the story, I do these, um, uh, discussion groups several times a week for the university, 
which is a, a kind of an offshoot of School Sucks. It's um, vir- we created a virtual summit last year called Ideas into Action, and so. Uh, we have, you know, weekly get to or Monday, Wednesday and Friday, we do get togethers and we can talk about, uh, you know, things that people want have learned there or have questions about or they want to apply to the current chaos of 2020, like all of those kinds of discussions can happen. And I was saying in, in a recent one, I think last week that you know, sometimes uh, I'll be on YouTube, you know, it's mealtime and I want to watch a a little video to entertain myself while I eat or to have somebody else entertain me while I eat, I guess I should say. And, uh, you know, YouTube has that very devilish uh, suggested uh, video section right next to whatever you're watching when you're on the computer. And, um, you know, you'll see a video from like CNN or or something. And I say, well, this will be amusing. And I have really good intellectual self-defense. So I'll be able to watch this as a kind of um, entertainment, right? I'll be able to watch this for the purpose of media analysis. But I'll watch it. And even if it's just like five or six minutes, I will certainly close it and feel worse, right? Because it's hitting you on some other level, on some more subtle subconscious kind of level. And I, I really feel for people who are watching stuff like that day in and day out and and letting that be the window through which they see uh the outside world it was like uh, you probably just heard the show uh that i did with isaac where we it was called all news um, all news is fake news with isaac morehouse and uh you know he said a perfect remedy for the uh the stress or the anxiousness that you can feel as a result of this media consumption is you just go outside and <laughs> yeah. the real the real world feels nothing like that most of the time. I mean, you can see glimpses and glimmers of it here and there, um, but it, it's it, it's a very, very important part of your diet. So yeah, I think that to, to f- create content focused on intellectual and, you know, that important pairing of emotional self-defense, like how do you process and protect yourself from these things that you're seeing, you have to show people those things. So, so yeah, I, I appreciate your, your input and your compliment there that we've, we, we do seem uh, from a listener perspective to be striking the right balance. Cause I never feel, I never feel like I am. I always go back and say, Oh, I'm doing too much of this stuff. I gotta, I gotta get back to the, to the good productive, um, you know, in my sphere of control type content. So, yeah. So let's highlight that more. And I'm curious if you could sort of illuminate for the listener, some of your maybe a couple stories over these past 10 years in terms of following through on that sphere of control idea that you planted in 2010. And I know you've, you've done, you've done series of shows that, and, and sort of learning out loud uh, for the listener in your own life, whether, whether that's health and fitness or, you know, uh, communication skills and, and nonviolent communication, self-esteem, but you know, when I mean, you can go any direction with this, whether it's health, financial, relationships, communication, uh, time, freedom, what growth have you experienced in these past 10 years? Well, I would, I would suggest, and this is a particularly tricky uh, one right now, but like physical fitness, physical health is, uh, if people are at the beginning of this journey or they know somebody who's at the beginning of this journey and that they're you know, aim, if people have, you know, gotten to this point with, with your podcast, they're on this journey, but they, they, they probably have outreach they want to do with people that they care about. And, um, you know, I have found that 
embracing some kind of physical fitness pursuit is a really, really good place to start um, because you do not see results like with any aspect of personal growth. The day after you start something, you do not see results. Uh, it requires a lot of hard work. And over time, uh, the dividends definitely become visible and not just in how you look, but in how you feel. Uh, and I think that, you know, so many of the practices, uh, the habits that we try to build, you know, like take journaling, for example, journaling could go on for three or four months. And at the end of it, 120, say 120 straight days of journaling, you could look at your journal and go, why am I doing this? You know, I mean, I, I, that's a meditation is another one. Maybe, maybe by, by three or four months, you're getting some yield from it, but most people might not, they most might not make it that long. Right. So to have fitness as a foundation for, for a better life, like some kind of fitness pursuit, I think that's a really, really good place to start. And then once you see those results, you'd say, all right, I have a model that works for, uh, you know, one type of growth or, or, self-improvement. What else can I apply it to now? So I was into that stuff before I started this process. It was basically like the only kind of um, self-care or, or personal uh, improvement thing <laughs> that I worked on for a long time. Uh, but, I, but I found, you know, when I had some challenges, um, you know, in, in 2013 in my life, in 2015 in my life, getting active, and moving my body and setting some goals and achieving those goals. It was the, the most important kind of reset to other types of, um, you know, uh, growth and, and improvement. So I'd say that, that is a really, really key place to start. And obviously that also um, is taking a, uh, building a kind of autonomy and, and ownership uh, in, in this realm of, of health, right? To get more health freedom. If you do not take care of yourself, you're basically outsourcing the responsibility of putting you back together to others, right? To a system that is extremely impersonal and, um, you know, has, has various perverse incentives. I'm talking about, you know, the healthcare system in this country. You do not want to be a dependent on that. So, shifting more into like, these are the things that I can uh, take ownership of. And, uh, you know, that would be like diet, exercise, you know, what you're, what you're putting in your body, uh, your, your, your stress level, all of those things are in your control. And then you realize that you have um, much more freedom than a lot of people who, who are, are not taking ownership at that point. So that's one. I mean, we can do as many as you like. Yeah. I mean, that's, fantastic place to start because everyone's everyone knows that that's worth doing um and then just trying to start wherever you are and start with baby steps if you just if you're, if you're not moving your body then just try to you know take a five minute walk in the morning and you've already made that one percent improvement and you know you alluded to this you know the theme of the podcast which is the exponential part where these things snowball you know and so you build momentum starting with one thing and you then these, these relate to other areas. So the health and fitness area, and you've, you've talked about this too. It's not just about 
eating food and moving your body and sleeping, it's a psychological motivation to continue those habits and do that from a place of intrinsic motivation. You know, you mentioned Wes, he has his, he has a show healthy mind fit body, which Mm -hmm. is really uh, addressing the psychological element, which is typically absent in the entire health and fitness industry, which is why you have so many people uh, just yo-yoing and not feeling motivated and they feel like they're forcing themselves to change their habits and using sort of willpower. And that doesn't stay in place. Whereas if you then start getting curious about the psychological realm and do that journaling, do that meditation, get curious about the parts of self that are feeling, you know, unmotivated. There's there's parts of self that don't want to go work out. Well, can you, become curious about that and hear those parts of you out. And then maybe you decide, Oh, actually I'm, I think what I really want to do is, is a different activity. I, I really feel like I want to play tennis. I don't want to go, you know, do deadlifts and that's more exciting to me. So that's going to be more sustainable. I don't, I don't like that word, but it's going to be more empowering and motivating when you get in touch with your intrinsic motivation. Right. And then when you start doing that, you know, you, you can really start diving into you know, deeper parts of self and getting curious about childhood experiences, about why you, why are you not motivated? And all these things can work off of each other. So. Yeah. And, and just a sort of introspection with a lot of that too, because fitness is a tricky one, right? Like uh, I had a conversation with Michael Malice uh, a couple of years ago and, you know, Michael Malice is always recruited to talk about like North Korea or or some political topic. And and what was interesting to me was like, here's a super smart guy. And he talks on his podcast about how like diet and fitness is a real struggle for him. So I said, I want to hear how, you know, somebody who's obviously, um, you know, has a very impressive intellect deals with a complicated problem. So we had kind of a uncomfortable <laughs> conversation about self-discipline in that. Uh, but, you know, one of his, like, as he looked into like the health and fitness world, he saw there's like a lot of unhealthy behavior there. Like the, the fitness thing is, is often a kind of patch over uh, the work that people, that, that inner work, right? Because like a lot of, um, you know, the results of the diet exercise, they're, they're external, uh, or, or at least there's there's an external payoff that's pretty easy to focus on. So people are using it as a kind of a, a substitute for maybe some of the more important work that they need to do. And he said he made some uh, declaration like there's a lot of really sick and crazy people um, in the fitness industry. So yeah. I think part of the the introspection as you as you talk about using this to to go further further you know to 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 engage in that inwardness about it is um, uh, this introspection of why am I doing this. And I would say that, you know, as a young man, I was doing it for totally superficial reasons. You know, like I just wanted to look good. Uh, that was really all that, that I cared about when I, when I started that maybe like in, in my early 20s. And obviously, again, enthusiasm and commitment waxed and waned in the last <laughs> 20 years. But, uh, you know, I've been really serious and committed uh, for, for several uh, consecutive years now. And it's, it's kind of evolved for me into a kind of meditation, but it took asking difficult questions like, okay, well, what if I lost a leg? What if I lost an arm? And then 
I could, none of this was a part of my life anymore, or, or it, it would certainly change dramatically from how it is in my life right now. How would I adapt? How much do I need this? What am I using this to imagine life without this thing that you love so much that some people might say you're obsessed with? Um, what, what could this be getting in the way of, uh, I guess, is, is an important question. So yeah, being able to to do that stuff and then and then discovering and this is like advice I've given to other people who, you know, wanted to go on on this this sort of personal growth journey is start there. This is if anything, yeah, you'll get some um aesthetic payoffs from doing it for sure. You'll look better, you'll be thinner, you'll like the way your clothes fit, etc. Um, but it's really a foundation of like how hard work produces results even though you can't see them right away. Like your first day of journaling, if you do a real brain dump, you're not going to feel better after, probably. Um, your first session with a therapist, if, if they're like, you know, really inquisitive and they're really good at getting to the things you're uncomfortable talking about, you're not going to leave there um, feeling better automatically. So it, it's the same kind of thing with this pursuit. And I think that like, it took me a long time to understand what, the utility of it was in my life, right? And now the things that were the primary motivators 20 years ago are sort of, um, you know, side benefits at this point. So if we could spotlight now, I mean, sort of related to that, but another element of this sphere of control concept, sure, which is relationships. And I think... Perhaps subconsciously, I would, I would conjecture that many people don't want to start on personal growth and become healthier because there is a fear of disconnection from their friends or their, cl their close relationships. Because if those relationships, those people aren't on that journey, then you, if you starting to grow, become healthier and happier is going to put up a mirror for those people and it can be uncomfortable for them, which can be uncomfortable for you because you have a need for connection and, and, and connect and friendships. So there's almost this sort of tall poppy syndrome going on of, I don't, well, I don't want to get to stand out from the group if I start improving my life. And I'm curious if you could speak to that, any, you know, challenges you've worked through in that arena and also how you may, may have employed uh, effective communication strategies. I know you've talked about ineffective experiences you've had communication-wise earlier in your life, but um, you know, you've talked about non-bound communication and negotiation skills and how, you know, what tips or, or encouragement will you have for someone who is interested in growing, but maybe is consciously or subconsciously uh, a little bit weary because of that relationship element. Um, I would say that it's worth doing a kind of uh, audit of the relationships that you have, whether they're familial or they're friends or they're romantic. You know, I, I think a lot of friendships are based on a kind of, uh, you know, legacy, uh, location. Uh, these are the people that I grew up around. And, and I think that's great. Uh, it's just not something I've really ever done. Like I'm not at odds or estranged from anybody I grew up with, but uh, it, it would be 
attending the same elementary school is not the basis for a lifelong friendship, uh, even though I do uh, respect and admire people who do have those kinds of those lifelong friends. But uh, what, what are friendships based on? And, or, or relationships in general, what are they based on? And when it comes to family in the romantic, uh, but it, it extends to friendship as well, I would say, if this is a relationship that is currently based on what we don't say, right? On, on um, this, this relationship, the peace in this relationship is maintained by keeping certain things under the carpet, which certainly extends to all three of those types of relationships. That's either something that, that needs to be addressed and hopefully remedied, or, or maybe that's a relationship that even if it doesn't end, uh, needs to have a lower priority. And I think the, the two most important things um, to build any kind of relationship on are, um, do I feel visible? Am I, um, am I committed to? Or, or, or do I have a desire to make this other person feel visible? And is there, you know, an ongoing pattern of understanding and respect? And from there, it doesn't really matter if somebody has the same political views or, uh, you know, the same general philosophical worldview. Like if, if a person has curiosity and a commitment to trying to understand to see you and and you know makes it um works to be seen by you i think that that's a foundation that you can work with but if in if i was in a relationship that was a friend a family member or a romantic relationship and a pattern of disrespect emerged or a pattern of not feeling visible emerged i i probably would not continue that relationship. So I think if people find themselves in that position where they don't want to lose these, and I, I get it, like, you know, I've been doing um, School Sucks podcast for a decade, and I've been involved in, um, you know, numerous sort of related uh, movements around it. So I've met and interacted with hundreds, if not thousands of great people and have lots of choices. Um, for, for who I, you know, who I can spend my time with. And, and I understand that not everybody is in that situation. So yeah, it, it can be difficult, but uh, I, I really think for me, if uh, again, like if a pattern of disrespect or uh, a pattern of not feeling visible uh, is emergent and persistent, then I, I probably wouldn't continue that relationship. Because that's you, you, you can't really build anything on that. Uh, and, and obviously, we see that sphere of concern, or that circle of concern outside the, the, the sphere of control, at least at this point in our existence, in this year 2020, closing in on, on that uh, control that we have. And our relationships are in there. So uh, we start to see things like on dating sites, people say, don't think you're going to even talk to me if you voted for Trump uh, or uh, people getting divorced over political reasons or uh, friends fighting over uh, political things that maybe don't even affect them directly. And they certainly can't change uh, those kinds of things, ending friendships. So um, there needs to be that, that, that foundation of understanding visibility and respect. And then I think um, you can sort of negotiate through 
these these things in the the, the larger world that that could interfere or or put stress on those kinds of relationships but if you jump in if you want to say anything but i i think that the if people are not ready to to look inward um there there is going to be a kind of um I don't know, discomfort in, in like the first friend who says, you know, I'm going to go to therapy or, uh, you know, I'm going to learn about adverse childhood experiences or uh, I'm reading this great book uh, called or, you know, saying to your romantic partner, I want us to read uh, If You Could Hear What I Cannot Say <laughs> by Nathaniel Brandon or The Psychology of Romantic Love. That is uncomfortable, I think. So, it's, I think you have the responsibility as the person on that path to find the, the soft touch to broach those subjects if you want to broach them with those people at all. And I, I guess that decision would be made based on the, the quality of the foundation of the relationship that I talked about before that. Yeah, and the need for visibility, I think, is absolutely primary. And you mentioned the psychology of romantic love, and that's Brandon really... Uh, you know, highlighted for me was, you know, feeling seen is when someone understands how you think they understand who you are um, and they, they celebrate that. Right. So if, if you are in relationships where you're not feeling free to say what you actually think, say what you actually feel, then are you actually connected to that person? Yeah. There's some element of sort of quasi connection because I think that's, that's our biological programming. We're just, being with people, talking to people, your body is going to be glad that you're doing that rather than having nothing. But um, at the, from, a, from a more uh, front part of the brain standpoint, uh, a self-esteeming standpoint, then you're not really going to feel connected. You're not going to be seen. You're going to be sort of alone if really in the relationship itself, you're not going to be free and open and honest. And it's like, well, what's better, you know, spending time on your own, turning inward and having a, a wonderful accepting relationship with your own self or kind of disregarding all that. And then just hanging on to friendships that are based on, you know, not really consciousness, basically not honesty. And in my experience, you know, this has been a big journey for me is, is trying to, you know, go where I'm celebrated, not where I'm tolerated. Go find people who uplift me and who see me and then either let go of other people or like you said, kind of deprioritize some of the other relationships. Um, so yeah, this, I wanted to, I wanted to mention this topic because it's just such an essential element of all of this. Um, so in our, you know, this last portion of the conversation, you did, you did mention ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, study and I wanted to sort of dive we're not, we can't go too deep but uh, dive into some of these realms of the in the inner world and and you know healing aspects of self and examining and also processing the school experience maybe we can start there like you were you've talked about the, kind of the idea of de-schooling and there's a great podcast series by the way called de-school yourself eight eight episode miniseries that uh, you were uh, one of the guests on. And especially right now where there's a lot of conversation about school and education and a lot of 
disruption ha- happening and people asking questions. Um, I think this is a really important uh, concept to, to think about where asking yourself what, what, um, what was it like for me as a kid going through 15,000 hours of school and how that impacted me and how I need to process that first before I can move forward. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is where this is sort of the template that we're given for a lot of our relationships in life as well. You know, just to add one more, more piece to, to the relationship thing. I think it was Brandon when you're, when you're talking about like going where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. Um, pretty sure it was Brandon who introduced this concept of feeling lonely for yourself. And I think that's, that's a really good thing to be conscious of when, when you're examining the relationships that, you know, take up a lot of time and energy in your life is, do I feel lonely for myself? Right. Do I feel, um, like, like I'm in some denial of self or, or this relationship is maintained by me doing some denial of, of self. I've felt that way in friendships. Um, I felt that way in family relationships, unfortunately, you know, even, uh, yeah, even over the age of 30, I, I felt that way in, in a romantic relationship more than once where, where parts of me that were really, really important were just basically invisible to, yeah. um, you know, partners. Um, so school's a good, uh, you know, training ground for that, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, if you, 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 you look at just let's tie in adverse uh, childhood experiences there. Um, and, and some of the people who've done, you know, the best work on this, including the whole, uh, IFS crowd, the, the book that I think we focused on most, um, <laughs> it's funny, all, all the, uh, all the best series of my show, uh, uh, uh for your audience involve, uh, Wes, cause we did that. We did the ACES series in, uh, 2015 adverse childhood experiences and resilience. So we were pulling from, uh, the, uh, the Body Keeps the Score by Bezel van der Kolk, which uh, has a lot of internal family systems therapy in it. Uh, but we were also looking at uh, the work of uh, this Dr. Pete Gerlach. Uh, and he uh, identified these, these six psychological wounds from childhood. And certainly, you know, a lot of this comes from family, but uh, school is uh, just an obstacle course. Of, of unmet needs, especially in those really, really formative years. I mean, just think about it from, from a, like a simple physical behavioral kind of standpoint, like what should a six or seven year old boy be doing? Should he be, is it physically or mentally healthy for him to be trapped in a desk? And this is just one, we're focused in on one tiny little aspect of that environment and, and the dramatically negative impact that it could have on somebody. But, you know, in that obstacle course of, of unmet needs, um, I think one of the things that contributes to those relationship problems that we're talking about is the formation of a false self, right? And I think the way that that shows up is obviously you're, you're forced to, even if you're doing it reluctantly from a very young age, um, behave according to rules that are for a huge collective 
And um, lots of them don't make a lot of sense. Lots of them do not respect uh, individuality or autonomy. And, and even if like, yeah, uh, we're talking about five and six year olds. So this is not just like, um, you know, I, I understand that argument from a school management perspective. It's like nothing is more important to us than that these kids feel free and autonomous in this environment, because I think a lot of, um, you know, teachers and administrators would see that as a kind of chaos and it'd be very difficult to get them to buy into that idea. But um, you have to l- reluctantly follow these rules that are very much about, uh, you know, denial of uh, desire, of your interest, um, uh, of what intrinsically motivates you. And and the think the predictable outcome of that is going to be some kind of false self. And obviously that extends into the, the social aspects of school, where eventually, as we become our own people, and I think that process is delayed by school as well, but usually for most of us, it's by the time we're showing up in middle school and we're saying, this is, the, this is my identity. This is who I am. I dress like this. I like this band. I do this sport. Um, but there's, I, I think still for so many of us, a kind of a, a weak sense of self or, or a lack of, of self-confidence in that we need the, the safety of a clique. Like we want to be individuals as long as there's a, a protective circle of other people doing basically the same thing. And, and I, I don't say that with any, with any judgment. I, th- I think that that is, um, you know, just a product of, of this kind of environment. And, um, you know, I, I think that's also where we, we learn a lot. I mean, we're tribal beings for sure, but I think a lot of those tribal impulses are, are reinforced right there. But, you know, if we're talking about the de-schooling process, um, and applying some of those those adverse childhood experience lessons to it, uh, formation of a false self, um, you know, especially uh, from a young age, uh, even though I think this goes on through the whole schooling process, um, internalizing things like shame, guilt, uh, fear, uh, our reality being distorted to to a certain extent, and 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 being in a very low trust environment, obviously has I think. Um, a really negative effect in that the setup of school, the setup of that environment is that, uh, you know, we do not trust you. Somebody was telling, somebody was telling me yesterday about something at their, at their job and how there's this incredibly bureaucratic process for even um, checking something out. Like even getting a, I need a book and you have to go through all this procedure of, you know, these signing these sheets. And it's like, why don't we just have trust here? You know, like we're adults. But that comes from school in a lot of ways. So I think that what comes with your diploma uh, is, as far as like uh, buried emotional stuff is, uh, you know, false self, shame, guilt, fears, um, issues with trust. Um, and then maybe in terms of some kind of self-protection, um, a lack of self-assertiveness when it comes to getting emotional needs met. Where have you ever practiced, you know, by the time you're, you're 15 or 16 years old in any kind of healthy way? And what, and what openness has there been to that? I, I think a lot of parents are better about that than they are, um, <laughs> than, than school is at like creating a space to have like those, those sort of needs expressed by young people. But that isn't saying much, um, you know, for parents. 
if they're coming in ahead of school because school really, really, really denies that stuff because the environment has to, you know? So, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a basic initial audit of, of some of the damage to undo uh, when we come out of school. But I think lots of those things um, apply to the family as well. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the gold, man. This is, we're really uncovering the root of, of the inner landscape. And I mean, shame and trust are two big roots right there where, I mean, yeah, like you said, the system that's, it's baked into the system when, when it's compulsory and you must attend and there's all sorts of effects from that premise. So it says right in that premise is we don't trust you to learn without us, without forcing you to attend this institution. So that self-trust and that, that need for trust is not getting met. And so there's, that's one route where in the de-schooling process, one can begin to examine that. And, um, and the shame, you know, if you don't, if you don't conform and obey or, you know, fall in line, basically, then you're shamed, you're ostracized, you're a bad kid, right? The yeah. whole idea of a good versus bad kid, you know, that's, that's where it's really tragic. And there's a lot of layers to unpeel. And this is really, really valuable. You know, you can, when you can start with just kind of getting connected to that inner child, right. Where, you know, um, I don't know if you saw Toy Story four, but one of the scenes that really struck me was there was a, a sort of five-year-old girl who had been playing with all her toys in the Toy Story world. And then, it was now time for her to go to kindergarten for the first time. And she was moved. She was taken away from her toys and she was very, very sad. And, you know, that was touching for me because that's what happens to 95% of kids. Mm. And if you can begin to get curious and introspect on that five-year-old that you once were and ask yourself, how do you feel about going to school because it just sort of happened, right? Everyone just kind of automatically, unconsciously, their parents unconsciously sent them because that's what you do. There's all this tradition, these feedback loops. Oh, it's time, you're five years old, time to go to school. Oh, you don't want to go. It doesn't matter. You miss what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's no sort of need for, for, for choice there as well. And you probably felt sad when you were five years old um, in one way or the other. And you know, you can decide that for yourself by asking, asking yourself a question to the five-year-old that you once were, Hey, how do you feel about going to school? And then you might actually have a therapeutic situation where you, you might, you might cry yourself like that girl in the, in the toy story movie did. And, but maybe you've suppressed that for years. Yeah. Or like, like I did. And I think that's, uh, I've talked about that on the show. And I, I remember, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can, I can see it, you know. I can see the darkness of the inside of the school bus, the tube, right? So it's like I'm looking down this tube as, you know, I'm sitting at the back of the bus. It's September 1983. And uh, so I, I'm like three quarters at least towards the back of the bus. And there's the darkness of the inside of the bus and the like the blown out light of, um, you know, the outside, the morning outside. And through the front window of the bus, I just see this brick building. I have no idea what's inside. I mean, I had been to um, 
school, like preschool and kindergarten and all that. But I, I remember this, this first day of school and looking down this tube of this bus and not knowing anything that was beyond it, but just feeling so uncomfortable with like everything I saw and seeing how many like other little people and bigger people that I did not know were accumulating outside of this building. I just wasn't prepared for it. And I just sat there on the bus and cried and said, I would, you know, I want to go home. And I, I don't know how, how common that story is, or even if, you know, I was um, certainly a very emotional child and um, maybe other people that age were better at just sucking it up and holding it inside. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, w I would like to hear, I, I, I wish more people would be able to do the, you know, whether it's through like a Brandon sentence stem completion kind of thing, or I also did um, Jordan Peterson's, uh, what was it called? Self-authoring, past authoring. And you, you know, you have to divide your life into these seven epochs and um, talk about like the four or five most impactful events from, from each. Um, and, you know, I had a wonderful first grade teacher. I, I saw her again when I was 31 years old. And I, you know, I remember I said, thank you for being so nice and, and so understanding and, and making that like uh, a tolerable experience because I was terrified. Um, but she was one person, right, in a giant system. And to a lot of the things that we're talking about, gosh, you know, I, I think the institutions are even the more finite initiatives that have the potential to do the most damage are the ones where everyone inside or everyone involved thinks they're doing good, right? Thinks they're doing the best thing. And that's very, very impermeable as far as like talking about like, what are the problems with this place? Like, who are you going to tell teachers? Like, no, 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 we're doing the best thing. We're doing the best work. And how was I, how would I explain, how would I explain School Sucks podcast if I could go back now and find my first grade teacher, poor woman's probably 85 years old. Um, I think she might live in this town where I live, but say I track her down and we have this conversation, like uh, I, I don't expect that, that to have much of, an, much of an impact, but I think there's a lot of people there who, who would just deny it for other reasons, right? Because they're too close to it or their their identity is wrapped up in that vocation in a way that um, you're just not going to be able to to do effective outreach there times however many million people are involved and however many million people rely on it uh, as a place to take care of their children while they go to work uh, when that was a thing uh, you know uh, we're, we're kind of actually uh, in, in an age of opportunity with all of this right now where people are obviously second guessing uh, a lot of things about this institution and the institutions that it feeds, you know, higher education, Harvard uh, knocks nothing off tuition while everybody will be attending school through zoom meetings. Uh, people are going to be very curious about what education means in this country. I think, um, come September and continuing on 2020 and 2021. So the people who are trying to project this stuff into the world are, are in a very good position, I think, to make a positive difference and maybe reach people we never expected to reach. Yeah. And you, know, you mentioned the identity thing and yeah, it's hard to persuade people who they've formed their own false self, which you also mentioned, and they have that guard up 
from an IFS perspective, they have that protector part up that doesn't want to entertain those ideas and it's scary. Um, so there's all sorts of the psychological, uh, these psychological layers. And that's why, again, you know, doing in the work for yourself is, is the real work and, and processing your own experience and, and taking away those protector parts or healing them and in creating a sense of self-integration and, you know, the ACEs study, you know, adverse childhood experiences, a series of 10 questions asking more about your, your household environment, but that's just a starting point for this introspection process. And uh, I'll link to the, in the show notes, the series that you, you did with Wes and I think it was Matt on ACEs. And yep. that was like four or five parts, you know, it's like 10 hours or something of really in depth. And that's really, that's, that's the crux of this all of it all. You know, and you're going to be able to, again, bring that back into the world, the more healing work that you do. So, I mean, just, just a minute left here, but I mean, let's, let's tie it together there. What's your, what's your, what's your elevator pitch with, for doing this type of inner work, which can be hard and, and challenging and, and frustrating and uncomfortable and painful. How, how is that going to really circle back to building a harmonious world? you know, that we, that we want a world without all this violence and all this coercion. I, uh, that, that's a really interesting question. And, um, <laughs> I, I hate for the finale, is too short, yeah, but. <laughs> to be that I, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that people need to return their energy and the focus to the things that they can control. And if people are at the beginning of this process and I'm making a pitch for, for my work as well, uh, one thing that we didn't talk about much, uh, but I think was really, really the turning point for me where, you know, I, it's not like I never, slipped up or, uh, uh, you know, did uh, engaged in some suboptimal thinking or behavior after this. But the thing that really changed my life most significantly was, was understanding Nathaniel Brandon's six pillars of self-esteem, which is something that you can dive very deeply into. And there's a lots of, uh, related practices and reading material, but it is very much, um, you know, a, a, a heuristic in practices that improve your relationship with self, your sense of yourself and your quality of life. Um, you know, self-esteem is, is, is talked about uh, in, in some cases like um, a, a lightning strike or something like a, a kind of fate, like, oh, I have high self-esteem or I have low self-esteem. Um, but that's, that's the, the outcome of action. Right. So learning what actions to take and to to constantly go back and, uh, you know, as new challenges present themselves, like we talked about 2020 being a difficult year for a lot of people as far as like, you know, sphere of control versus uh, sphere of concern crushing it. Uh, but to be able to go back and say, you know, am I living conscious? Am I being accepting of myself? Am I taking responsibility? Am I being properly assertive with my needs? Uh, you know, Am, am, I, am I living purposefully? Am I, you know, in integrity, right? Do my wor- actions match my words? Um, is a relatively simple and straightforward thing to do once you learn that material. Like it's more complicated than what I just laid out. So part of my pitch is obviously to get people to listen to um, School Sucks. And I would say for your audience, that would be a, a wonderful place to start. Um, the, I th- feel like, 
the strength, the new strength that I got from practicing that made me a more effective uh, communicator, right? Like, like it took care of a lot of unaddressed things in that inner sphere of control that I think were interfering with me being a person of influence beyond that. Uh, and, and that, you know, works as far as the show is concerned, but it also worked, I think, really well in my, in my personal life. So if people are interested in healing the world, whatever that means, you know, however big the world is that you're looking at, whether it just means your family system or, or your community or actually addressing or, or, or trying to be influential in a lot of these really uh, challenging and frustrating problems that we're all dealing with right now, I think that is the place to start is doing the work to expand uh, your influence. And for me, that was uh, the key. So I would recommend that. But I yeah. know you've talked about that. You've probably talked about that uh, a whole bunch in your podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, if you want to create world peace, then create inner peace, right? Love it. If you're healing these parts, creating self-integration and loving all parts, welcoming all parts, and you're, grounded in who you are an authentic way, then that's going to be, that's going to be the first step. You can't have a healed world without healed individuals. So it all starts with, it all starts, starts with the self. All right, Brett Vinat, it's been a pleasure and check out his work. Schoolsucksproject.com over 650 episodes going back to 2009, some really amazing series and really well-produced episodes as well. And Twitter is at school sucks show, I think. And, uh, any, anything else you want to plug there? Uh, no, that's it. If, uh, I would, I would recommend that people check out our site, SSP uh, com, and our ideas into action summit, where I try to take like a lot of the, uh, what I see as the most valuable, uh, content as far as like better, acquisition of information, synthesis of information, and then using that information to persuade other people. Um, it doesn't really have a ton to do with personal de development, but it is a, a good collection and condensation of a lot of uh, what I think is the most important work that we've done outside of that um, on, on being more persuasive and, and more effective thinking. Uh, I would recommend people check that out as well because that is uh, the future of our of our project here, stuff like that. But I, I just want to thank you so much for for having me on and uh, to be you know now in this feed with all of this other um, great content that you've done. Uh, and I'd be happy to do it again anytime in the future. So thank you very much, Joel. Wonderful. Uh, it's meaningful to me, and it's my pleasure. And uh... Really appreciate your time and all your influence on, on all, these, all these ideas over the years. So thanks again. Thank you.